Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Hugh Stewart is an acclaimed portrait photographer, probably the closest thing down under to Annie Leibovitz. Grew up on a dairy farm in New Zealand, left for Europe straight out of school and was living in a notorious London squat in the early 80s when he picked up his first camera and started taking portraits of his friends. He found himself in Sydney in need of a job, put together a portfolio of his pics and received his first assignment for Australian Vogue. Talk about landing on your feet. Since then, he's worked across the globe for over three decades. He's photographed Johnny Cash, Michael Caine, Jude Law, Nicole Kidman, Paul Newman, Ed Harris, Kenneth Branagh, George Clooney. Frankly, this list is too long to list. Think of a big name and he's probably shot them. Matt Damon, Tom Hanks, Catherine Deneuve, Clint Eastwood, Naomi Watts, Julian Schnabel, Rod Stewart, Sir Ian McKellen, Leonardo DiCaprio, should I go on? Kate Blanchett, Jeffrey Rush, Robert Redford, Emma Thompson, the Duchess of Devonshire. Wow, what a title that is. And five Aussie Prime Ministers. Magazines include Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, The Face, ID Magazine, British, French and American Vogue. Wow. Commercial clients include Australian Tourism, HBO, Netflix, Warner Brothers and Chanel No. 5. Hughes' portraits have been exhibited internationally in places like the National Portrait Gallery of London and Canberra. Hughes, a regular collaborator with Baz Luhrmann on films like Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge and his forthcoming film about Elvis. The curveballs of late haven't slowed Hughes' creative output either. His lockdown video call portraits that he's done from home have connected broadly across the globe, and he's taken over 300 thus far. Hugh is a down-to-earth, unassuming guy who doesn't fawn over celebrity. In his eyes, every subject is a person. Full stop. Please welcome to The Blank Canvas, Hugh Stewart. G'day, Hugh. Hey, Lee. Good to see you. You too, a bit of a sleepy Sunday afternoon, this one, isn't it? It kind of is, yes. Um, it is, but I am refreshed. I'm back from the park with the dog and uh, I'm up and running. I've got my vitamin C drink. Oh, fantastic. Hey, we crossed paths a lot, you know, over 20 years ago for a decade, I guess, and um, similar circles and similar businesses and um, all of that. But Holy cow, I've been catching up with your website and your work. You've got an incredible body of work. I was aware of some of it, but you've been a busy boy for um, kind of three decades really, haven't you? Yeah, I've been quite lucky. I think I've managed to maintain a career, you know, in what's not always an easy environment for a, a lot of years. Um, but I don't take it for granted and I'm fully aware that the business that I'm in is not particularly stable. So I'm like everybody else. I'm always searching for something else to keep me occupied and keep me inspired and keeping the show on the road. Yeah. So to some degree that's managed to sustain it, I suppose. 
No, that's right. Yeah. Surviving in our businesses or in the arts is success. <laughs> Survival. Now, I was trying to remember, did we work together back in the day? Oh, maybe. I don't know. We do know a lot of the same people. Though. Yeah. You know, and we probably started out at around the same time. Possibly. Yeah, yeah. Back in the very early days, I used to work for Dolly and all those magazines when I um, yeah. had sort of delusions of being a fashion <laughs> photographer, <laughs> which I quickly uh, moved on from. Yeah, well... But um, I can't remember, to No, be well, I, I can't either. Don't take that personally, no. though, because I worked with Emma, my wife, who did a little bit of modelling when she was at uni, and... Um, I have no recollection. <laughs> she recalls this kind of bumbling character who was like dropping things and stuff quite vividly, but I had no recollection. Well, I've got, yeah, I've got blurry recollection of that time and there was, yeah, that dolly time. And um, I guess it turned out to be a good thing that you went more toward the portrait path rather than the fashion path because there's probably more longevity. Well, Looking at Look, your career, that's the case. It was interesting, you know. I think at some point I, when I started taking photographs and realising I could make a living out of it, I was still in some way enamoured with the glamour of, you know, the sort of fashion world, the perceived idea that that's what it was. You know, in the beginning I did have delusions of becoming a fashion photographer and I realised that it's like a pyramid, you know, the people at the very top, they have a real understanding of fashion and they love it and I don't have that, that interested in it. And it was when I sort of changed my direction and started taking portraits that I got opportunities to work for people that I wouldn't have had necessarily if I continued working as a fashion photographer. Um, so, yeah, kind of worked out quite well. But it took me a little while to come to that um, realisation, I suppose. Yeah. Part of that was just as I became more immersed in photography and what I liked about photography and understood it more and understood other photographers. Were. Yeah, well, I guess your laid-back approach suited that portrait world as well. Yeah, look, there's two ways that you can take portraits, I think. You can sort of make the whole sitting excruciating for the person and get a photograph that perhaps quite often can be quite a beautiful photograph. I actually genuinely just like spending time with people and that was my main motivating factor and, I, you know, I enjoy that, that idea that I got to meet and still do a lot of people that I necessarily wouldn't have gotten to meet and I like making or creating an environment that's comfortable for somebody and photographing them under those circumstances. Yeah. How often do you know what you're going to do prior to going in? Do you get a phone call with, say, some of these big stars you've worked with, or does it turn up at a place they tell you to go and, you know, you just have to have a chat with them and improvise? Um, I always, you know, I get a bit of warning about what I'm doing. I, you know, I generally know what I'm doing a few weeks in advance, but I realise quite quickly with people that you have to know what you're doing and you have to be able to articulate what your idea is and then you have to be able to also respond if they're not that keen on the idea. You've got to have another idea. So it's a kind of combination of being really well prepared in terms of researching who you're photographing but then being able to respond 
quickly, you know, when whatever it was that you thought you might do doesn't work out. And that just comes with experience. And a lot of that's experience to some degree with the technicalities of photography. And as you become more and more comfortable with that part of it, then you are able to really focus on connecting with the person that you're photographing and taking a great picture. Gotcha. You know, in the early days, you're sort of running around wondering if you've got the exposure right and, you know, whether the flash is going off and all the rest of it. And then as you become more comfortable with all of that, then um, it sort of gets easier. Gotcha. Working with celebrities, which is a lot of the work you seem to do, a lot of that comes with other challenges, wardrobe, publicists, you know, this, that and the other. How much of that do you have to go through these days? Obviously, there wasn't so much of that in the beginning, but there is now. Yeah, especially, you know, living in America. I mean, I've got a good story about that. When I was living in New York, I got a commission to go and photograph Clint Eastwood. So my assistant and I, we flew down to Los Angeles and drove up to Carmel. And I had a phone number that I was to call. And I assumed that was the publicist, you know, and that I would generally in these circumstances, there's a lot of people involved. Anyway, I called this number and I spoke to this woman and I said, look, you know, I've scoped out this paddock in these trees that I'd like to photograph him. You know, and ideally I'd like to do it in the afternoon and but what I would really love is if you have a prop of some sort. And this person was like, well, look, that's fine. We can get Clint there. Um, we've actually got the truck from Bridges of Madison County sitting at home, which if you want it, you can come and pick it up and bring it down. So anyway, Julie, I did. I went and picked the truck up. I, I took it down there. We were all set up in this paddock and I expected the usual sort of convoy of black SUVs, you know, which usually comes with these people, preceded usually by a publicist. And this one little white Mercedes sedan, about 20 years old, rolls down this dirt road and out gets Clint, you know, with his pants up above his waist, you know, out and around his chest. And um, he comes over and we spent a whole afternoon with him. He ended up, he was wearing some awful golf shirt, so I had to take my shirt off and give it to him to wear. So there were the three of us, we sat in this field, we took pictures, he told us stories about, you know, Sergio Leone and working on, on spaghetti westerns and stuff, and then... You know, he helped us pack up and he left and he bought some cheese and biscuits with him, you know. And then a week after that, I was up in um, Connecticut somewhere to photograph uh, Paul Newman. Same deal. Paul came down again in a funny old Mercedes sedan. Wasn't interested in getting dressed up. I mean, unless you, we had stylists and everything there, he would take a look at the rack of clothes and he goes, what's wrong with what I'm wearing? You know, and he had on like jeans and one of his power tote boots was tucked into the jean leg and the other one wasn't. He just stood against a wall and I got great pictures of him. And then a week later we were back in New York and I was photographing some celebrity chef, Bobby Flay, right, who was, had some TV show on the Food Network, you know, and we're down in the meatpacking district and, of course, like, you know, four black SUVs turn up <laughs> with all these publicists and stuff and you're just like, you know, that says it all, doesn't it? That's and anyway, look, he turned out to be a good guy. We got a great photograph and everything, but yeah. That's, that's gold. Yeah, the Paul Newman photo, yeah. that's one of my favourites. Mate, I can't believe how many pics you've got on your website. That's a lot of content on a website. Is that a conscious decision or do you just kind of put everything up there? No, that's just laziness. <laughs> I've actually got somebody who's about to redesign it. But I also think, look, there's a time when you're still kind of young and you think that you've got to just have all your latest work there. But I'm 60 now. You know, I've got a whole body of work now. And 
you know, I kind of like seeing it. People look at it for different reasons. So. I loved it, mate. I was shocked. I was sort of scrolling down and going, oh, yeah, I'll just have a quick look at what's there. And it just kept going and going. And I'm like, I couldn't. Yeah, but no, I don't know how no, to respond no. to that. No, it was good. I liked it. But I've, I haven't seen another photographer's, you know, or a director's site. Normally they go, yeah, put your... I've done a lot of work <laughs> over the years. Yeah. I've been lucky. I've done a lot. You know, I've photographed a lot of people. No, no. It's all... <laughs> I might go and take it. No, no, now. no. Don't. It's a it's, it's a positive, but I was genuinely blown away. I mean, you know, peripherally, I've watched you over the years, but until now, until in the last few weeks, I've never been to your website and actually looked at it all. And it's really it has blown me away. So it's had the desired effect, mate. Don't cull. Don't don't. There's plenty more. <laughs> Thank oh, you. No, that's gold. So on those shoots, it was you and an assistant. As I've been looking at your stuff, I'm thinking, oh, well, I guess you're the Aussie Kiwi equivalent to Annie Leibovitz. I mean, when you look at shots of her doing her, you know, shoots for Vanity Fair and all the rest of it, I mean, it looks more like a commercial shoot. It's like a an extravaganza, a lot of crew, you know, there's a standby props guy on the fan, there's the stylist, there's the hair, there's makeup, there's gaffer, there's, you know, they're big. Clearly, we don't have the budget for that sort of stuff here most of the time, unless maybe uh, on one of Baz's films you might, but I'm guessing you probably don't because you've got, you know, that low-key kind of approach. But is it mostly you and assistant, or do you sometimes get a bigger crew and a gaffer and stuff? No, I've had the whole gamut of it. You know, when I lived in New York, I used to work for HBO quite a lot, you know, and I remember going off once to shoot HBO posters for... Um, actually, it was a Fred Skepsy film, one big one that we did. Six Degrees, um, did you do no, he did a he did a TV series. Oh, Empire and it was Falls up in May. with Paul Newman. Empire Falls. So I did the posters for that, you know, and we turned up there. The cast in that was incredible. You know, Paul Newman, Helen Hunt. We had eleven major Hollywood stars. So for the, something like that, you know, we went up three days before. We spent a whole day pre-lighting it. For every single light that we had, we had two extra, you know, packs sitting next to them in case something went down. Because, yeah, you get, the, you get the talent, you know, you shoot the picture with stand-ins in the beginning and then you get the talent for sort of an hour, like corralling. And then the funny thing about that is, you know, when you've got 11 actors working, some of them are method actors, so the minute they're in costume, which they were for the picture, they're in costume and they're in character, and then the others are not. So Paul Newman was playing this sort of crusty old guy. He was in character, so if I asked him to move to the left of a picture, firstly I had to address him as his character's name, not as, I mean, it's a bit of a wank, but whatever, whatever. Whatever works for you. It's just the photo shoot. Yeah. yeah, it's worked for him a lot better than anything's worked for me, so you know what I mean, like you can't. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he'd be, you'd ask him to move to the left, he'd deliberately move to the right, you know, because he was playing this kind of old curmudgeon, and then, you know, like someone like Edward is not a character actor he just or not yeah. a method actor yeah so not a method actor yeah. sorry so um yeah look it's just horses for courses it was interesting back in those days to some degree i remember once i worked quite a bit for vanity fair and i was asked to go to la to shoot someone i can't remember who it was and i was like look there's a bar in santa monica i'd just like to take him there i can meet him there and shoot her it doesn't have to be it. and they're like no no you don't understand we have to give them the vanity fair experience which meant you know you end up shooting with a row of trucks down the street like a tv commercial in australia and quite often to the detriment of the picture i think because yeah you end up shooting them in some 
car that they've rented, you know, whereas all I wanted to do was sit in a bar with the guy with my Leica and take a picture, and I think it would have been a better picture ultimately. But, but look, to some degree those days are over, and it's quite nice back to just take it. Well, now, the way we are now, I'm taking pictures on FaceTime because we're <laughs> locked down. So I don't even get to meet them. But, yeah, look, it's all different. It's all, yeah. you know, it's all different. I'm quite comfortable in all environments. I do. I like the idea of walking on a set, you know, and you've got all these people there for you. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Equally, I'm just as happy to go to someone's house and spend a few hours with them. Yeah, gotcha. You seem to have navigated the transition from film to digital really well. Tell me about that. Yeah, look, I mean, I think to some degree, because for me it's more about the image than what I take it on. I didn't hang on to shooting on film for any reason other than initially my kind of lack of confidence was shooting digitally. But then once I, I embraced it and I started to understand it more and realised that really it afforded you to take better pictures in many ways. You know, you can shoot in a lot less light, There's, you know. So now, look, I haven't shot anything on film for years. Occasionally I pull out my 5.4 camera and take a photograph of a flower or something, but... Right. How do you, how do yeah. you go with that transition of people obviously being able to see the image with great detail on a monitor at the time and you've got, you've got the talent themselves, you've got their people, management, publicists, everyone there, you know, over the monitor with an opinion at that time um, rather than, you know... In the film area, you might have Look, had a... I don't mind. I'm quite good at telling people to, like, you know, back off if I need to. Um, but, yeah, those sort of things, I'm not that precious about it. I'm not one of those people that puts, you know, black curtains up around the subject when I'm photographing. I, I like working collaboratively. You know, I'm completely open to people making suggestions when I'm working. I love it. And I like the environment. I don't want an environment that, you know... Uh, the whole thing about portrait photography, I love the democracy of the whole thing, you know, so I'm just as interested in just photographing people, irrespective of whether they're a movie star or whether they're just some guy I've met, or not just, but a person I've met, you know, in the street. Everybody, in my mind, is equally important. So, yeah. Cool. You've shot, obviously, there's some mates like Naomi Watts who you've shot a bunch of times. Who's your favourite who you've shot, you know, many times over the years? I don't think I've had a favourite. What I can say, quite categorically, is that I've never had a bad experience photographing somebody, ever. I don't think I ever have. If it felt like it was going south, I've managed to turn it around. But, you know, I take people as they are and, and I've never really been in a situation that some people do where they, you know, they've not been able to get a photograph. That's cool. I like the challenge of it. You know, I don't like torturing people to get a photograph. and. Look, I work quickly too, and I quite often feel that the great shot, you know, I'll often look back and I'll be editing and somewhere at the beginning of the shoot's the best shot, quite often, you know, and the longer I carry on, the less less connected you are with the person that you're photographing. Um, look, it's been a really trippy year or two. We won't go into COVID in, in detail, but I've seen the uh, FaceTime portraits you've been doing. That's a, that, they're cool. They're great. How did that come about? 
Well, I had this idea a few years ago where I started doing these little pop-up studios. I like the idea of just building a little studio anywhere, outside in a laneway in a shop somewhere. And I just as a little project, I did these, these portrait studios where I could photograph anyone. And then suddenly people started getting me to do them sort of commercially. And like Lexus and people would fly me down and I'd build a little studio at the Melbourne Cup and I'd photograph people. And there's a sort of specific way that they look. Anyway, I had the studio set up in our garage when the whole COVID thing kicked off about a year ago. And I was looking at it, and I usually have a sort of chair sitting there and the person will sit on the chair, and uh, they're quite simple pictures. That year, I came runner-up in the National Portrait Prize in Canberra, and my prize was a, um, like an ESO monitor, like a really good one, but I had no use for it. You know, the guy that won got like $40,000 and something else, so I was like, I was very grateful to come runner-up. But I had this monitor, and then I was looking at the monitor and thinking, if I put the monitor on the chair and FaceTime somebody, I could take portraits of them, you know, and acknowledge that it was on a screen. I'd seen people doing kind of FaceTime portraits while they were sort of screenshotting the screen. Anyway, so I started doing this series in lockdown, and I ended up doing about... 350 of them, including, you know, Jacinda Ardern, all sorts of people. And um, then, of course, the lockdown went a lot, lot longer and then I started getting booked to do these things. And right now I'm in the middle of doing a big series. I'm doing a series now for Vogue I'm in the middle of and another series for The Australian. So it rolls along. You know, it's interesting as well because, you know, I started out doing them thinking that they were just a sort of... Um, to compensate for not being able to photograph somebody. And then I realised, well, you know, it gives us access to people. I can photograph people that we wouldn't normally have access to. So, you know, Vogue, all of these magazines, they don't have money to find. Part of a series I did for them a while ago, you know, I photographed a girl that started Black Lives Matter. I mean, that would never have happened. They're not going to fly me over to Los Angeles and photograph her. One night I photographed Jane Goodall, you know, who's in England. So I feel that they're a sort of, you know, they're quite a legitimate form of portraiture. I mean, the Jane Goodall one, I was up in Queensland. I've been working on Baz Luhrmann's new film and we were out on location in the middle of the night, shooting in the middle of a sort of cane field. And I went rushing back to one of the producer's trailers where I'd hotspotted my phone, you know, to the computer and I had my screen set up. And then I spent 20 minutes off set photographing Jane Goodall and then rushed back and, you know, carried on with what I was doing. So it's still about the whole connection with someone. You know, you still get this moment. In fact, I've found that they're actually quite a personal... You don't have all the accoutrements that go with the photo shoot normally. There's not a guy over there on the computer going, oh, I'm not sure if it's sharp. You know, all of the little distractions that you get that can be quite annoying. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just another way of making portraits as far as I'm concerned. And I quite enjoy it because you end up, it's the same thing. You meet someone, you have a chat. No, it's very cool, mate. I mean, it's the same like this podcast. I would never have started this without being in lockdown a year ago. I mean, it's literally a year. Never imagined I'd still be doing it 45 eps later, a year later. No, I think it's to your credit, Lee. I think it's great. Look, I think we're probably the similar in that we're the sort of people that you find ways out of situations. I've always operated quite well when I've been in a corner. You know, I've had to think my way out of it and figure out, okay, 
I've got to come up with something here. You know, I've got kids to feed. It's <laughs> tough more than that. I've got a lot of people with their hand out, you know. And so, yeah, you just sort of go, well, I'm, yeah, I like Yeah, that, right? I'm the same. I think you grew up in a farm, didn't you? So you probably got that pragmatic side to your core. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in New Zealand on a dairy farm. I didn't get anything handed to me. My mum died when I was quite young, left my father with seven children on a dairy farm in New Zealand. We had a lovely upbringing, but, you know, I certainly wasn't brought up to think that anybody was going to, you know, that basically the person that was going to give me a good life was myself. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I've worked quite hard to achieve anything that I might have achieved. I reckon so. Like, what did you do when you left home, left school? I think you were in the UK for a while, weren't you? Yeah. My mum died when I was 14. And um, so to some degree, I kind of rebelled a bit. And I I was quite good at school, but I never loved it. And and I left after school. Look, I don't think I would have ever been allowed to do that if my mum had stayed alive. But I left school and I ended up, I did a printing apprenticeship. And a big part of that was uh, that I used to have to go on these sort of block courses at Auckland Technical Institute in Auckland. And at the same time in Auckland, there was a very healthy kind of punk rock music scene going on that I kind of got into. And through that, I was interested in music and all I wanted to do was get out and go to London. And I finished my apprenticeship. I wasn't asked to stay on which is an indication of how much I, I, I wasn't that great of it. But, but look, during the course of it, I ended up not printing. I spent my whole time in the dark room making printing plates and making artwork for people. So it was a small printing firm. But I left New Zealand in 1981 and went and lived in London. I mean, I go back to New Zealand. My dad's still alive. My family's all there. We're all pretty close. But I haven't lived back there since. Gotcha. Did you do any kind, when you are in London, how did you make a living and did you do any kind of training or did you just pick up a camera and start shooting your friends? Well, to some degree, that's it. I got to London, I bought a motorbike and I became a motorcycle courier straight away. Got to know London very well. And um, it was sort of, it was the early 80s, you know, Margaret Thatcher was in, the mining riots were on, there was all this stuff. And I ended up moving into this squat in Houston which became quite famous, Notorious Squat, and a lot of quite interesting people lived there. But a lot of the people that lived there were at the Royal College, they were at RADA, uh, they were at the Slade, they were at Central College of Arts. So I was surrounded by this, this whole sort of creative environment that I loved, and I took pictures of it. I had a camera, I loved it, and I started photographing people there, really. And then I moved to New York, and worked in a kind of shop on St Mark's Place for about six months. I was in a band. I was playing in this band in New York, so we ended up playing at CBGB's and Danceteria and stuff. Oh, this you is know, fantastic, mate. I never knew that. It was pretty well, no, it was, I mean, I'm no musician. I'm absolutely not. And, um, but it was pretty loose and it was kind of interesting. Anyway, I, and then um, after a year of being in New York, I came back to New Zealand. I remember I'd been in Danceteria the night before I flew back to Auckland. I flew back to the farm and my father had me on this roof of a barn, painting this barn roof that, you know, a day later. It was a bit of a contrast. Anyway, I ended up coming over to Sydney and, you know, I needed a job. And I had this whole 
portfolio of photographs of people that I'd photographed. I used to do portraits of people and I thought, well, I was big-headed enough to think, oh, well, I'll just start at the top. So I went to Vogue and they gave me a job. So my first ever commercial job for Australian Vogue. Anyway, I look, it, you know, it kind of fluctuated from there. <laughs> you know, I sort of went backwards. So I worked for them. Around that time, I started working for Dolly magazine, worked for all sorts of people. And then in the middle of all that, somehow... I got this random call from this art director at Mackay King in New Zealand who became Saatchi and Saatchi. Anyway, he said, look, I've seen some of your work and I've got this job for Steinlager and we're going to go all around the world photographing people drinking beer and all different things. So I ended up getting this job and I think I got the advance or I got paid for it or something the day that I was supposed to be in court to explain why I hadn't paid my MasterCard bill. And I went off for six weeks all around the world with this guy. We flew first class everywhere. Actually, we were really lucky because we, we went all through Asia, then we went all through America, and we went across to the UK and to Paris and somewhere else and then came back and ended up in Hawaii. And we were booked on that plane where the door flew off the plane, you know, and somebody got sucked out of it. Um, and we'd been out the night before and missed the flight and didn't make it. But my father thought I was on the flight. Anyway, that sort of got things going. And then that job won a Clio Award for photography in New York, which is the advertising. Anyway, look, and then after that, I moved back to London and lived in London for years and years and years, and then moved to New York and worked there. I mean, it's a long story, Lee. God. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of stories. (laughs) Oh, mate, it was a clear plan and mission statement from the start and you went after it, not. <laughs> yeah, exactly, not. Um, no, but that, that, to some degree, that's what I mean. I got really interested in it as I went along. I think at some point fairly early on, I realised the sort of photographs I wanted to take and I've pretty much been on the same trajectory the whole time. The thing with the whole fashion world is that it's, it's very... It's fickle. It's clicky. It's fickle and it changes all the time yeah. and one minute you're there and then you're not. And I always looked at the careers of a lot of the portrait photographers who were just there the whole time. And that's where I felt I could contribute a lot more. Probably the first photographer that I ever knew about in my little world, you know, growing up on the farm, was Lord Snowden. You know, and I knew about him. And he worked for Vogue, English Vogue a lot, and so I always wanted to work for English Vogue. And I had tried as a fashion photographer and I didn't get anywhere. And then I was shooting a lot more portraiture, sort of lifestyle things, and I sent Vogue this little promo thing. And I got this phone call from this girl who I ended up working with a lot called Fiona Golfo, this great girl. And I was living in New York and she said, look, we got your thing, we really like it, I'd love to meet you. And she said, I'm actually at the Mercer Hotel next week. And I said, well, look, we're around the corner. And we had a cup of tea and I ended up working for them for about five years, you know, almost every issue sometimes, and got to photograph all sorts of people. You know, we went off and we'd do the BAFTAs and we'd go down to the Cannes Film Festival and photograph people. So it was really, I got these opportunities that I never would have gotten. So I fulfilled a few dreams. That's fantastic, mate. Yeah, I mean, you've done a lot of royalty, you've done five prime ministers or something here. You know, interesting. Like, after I'd been working for Vogue for quite a while, I became quite good friends. I mean, a lot of people in there. And the picture editor in there was this guy, Mike Tro, who's, I love him, he's such a good bloke. And... um, 
Snowden was still under contract to Vogue, even though he'd only do about one picture a year, and so was Bailey. And once I'd said to Mike, I really would love to photograph Snowden, and he said, look, I'll sort it out for you. So I was in London, and he said, look, I've spoken to Snowden, and he said, yeah, we can go over and photograph him. So we went to his house, just off Gloucester Road in Kensington, he was there, and I ended up taking his portrait. Oh, he kind of told me what to do. I mean, he's got a little studio on the back of his house, which was, you know, it was, it was quite, I mean, a lovely house, but he just had this little lean-to on the back of his house where he'd taken all these very famous photographs. And the deal was that I could go and photograph him as long as we took him out to lunch. So I photographed him, and he, he was there going, oh, what are you using that background for? You know, you change that, you know, whoa, whoa. He's trying to tell me what to do. Anyway, I got these great pictures of him. And about it was, we got there at about sort of 10, 30, 11 o'clock. He's going, oh, 11 o'clock, we should have a glass of wine. You know, so by the time we left for lunch, it was probably about one. And we, I got in a taxi with him and Mike rode his bike and we drove through and we went past Buckingham Palace and everything's going, oh, I used to f- Prince of Margaret up in that room, all the sea. You know, he's pretty full on, quite a funny guy. And... Um, we went to Cipriani's and we, he sat underneath his usual table, which was under a Bailey picture of Snowden. And then he just started getting into He drinks these things called bull shots, which is a sort of posh English drink that they drink when they hunt. And it's half beef stock and half vodka. And he had about seven of those. Disgusting. And then, um, you know, just as I was getting them, rather large bill, you know, he's still ordering ports. And then we sort of poured him into another car and he went off home. But, you know, that's, you know, I, I got fantastic pictures of somebody that I'd known about all my life. Mate, that's fantastic. Well, I don't know. You know, the, the, the great thing about it, isn't it, you just get these opportunities sometimes that, you know, like this kid from New Zealand wouldn't normally have gotten. Yeah, for Lord Snowden, mate, a barbarian from down under. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Talking about opportunities, you've done some great work with Baz over the years and what an amazingly clever guy and what wonderful images you've Look, delivered. Yeah, I've had a long relationship and I, I really adore Baz and Catherine. I was living in New York. I was back in Australia one year and I got this message saying that this film director who had he'd made Strictly Ballroom and he, uh, he needed a photographer to work on this project. And I went round and I met Baz. He was living in an apartment in Rushcoast Bay. And he said, look, I've got this idea. I, I want to make this film. I want to do Romeo and Juliet. And I've got this young actor in mind, Leonardo DiCaprio, and I'm flying him out to Australia. We want to take some pictures. I want to sort of kind of illustrate with photographs, the idea that he had. Basically what he did was he flew Leo out to Australia and he flew um, Natalie Portman out, who he was considering to play Juliet. So he said, look, we'll take a series of photographs. And he had some other actors and things, and, you know, we recorded sound, all this stuff. And I said, look, why don't we also film it? Because I was into shooting Super 8 at the time. So we, we spent about three days around Darlinghurst and I took all these photographs and we filmed it on Super 8 and then... He put it to music and cut it all together and used that film to raise the money to make the movie. And then ultimately they didn't use Natalie, they used Claire Danes. And since that time, I've worked with Baz on pretty much every single project that he's done. So, you know, I've been extraordinarily lucky. I've done two Chanel campaigns, thanks to Baz. Um, 
I haven't done the day-to-day -day work on all of his films. Um, I, was, I never really had the time, although they did ask me to be the on-set photographer, but I've done poster shoots, all that, you know, so I've been on set of everything. Um, and then, more recently, you know, he had this project doing a film on Elvis Presley, and they asked me if I'd be interested in shooting on the whole thing. And because I love the subject matter and because it was them and because of where I am now, I decided to do it. So I worked on it. I think for three months I was up in Queensland. I couldn't come back because the borders were closed. And then, you know, I think I probably worked on it for five months, end of last year, at the beginning of this year, which was a pretty extraordinary experience. Yeah, I And bet, I, I bet. think it's going to be a terrific film. The kid that plays... Elvis, this guy Austin Butler is just extraordinary, and Tom Hanks is in it as well, playing um, Colonel Tom Parker. Big part of the film is about their relationship, and I, I honestly, I think it's Mandy Walker shot it. Yeah, you know, it was just a, it was an extraordinary experience. I, I loved every minute of it. You know, I shot on the set, I shot video, and I had a little studio set up every day where I'd shoot portraits of people, you know, to be used for posters and stuff. So. Can't talk too much about no. it because I've signed an NDA. Yeah, no, that's cool, mate. Yeah, I had Mandy on a podcast a couple of weeks ago and she's just a lovely class act, isn't she? Well, look, they're great people to work with. They're really collaborative. Look, there's something about Baz because he's, he's so confident in his own ideas that he's not threatened by other people. And that's not necessarily always the case with people in his position. It's a unique experience. It's very different from working with other directors. I really like them. They're great. The combination of he and Catherine are just a, really a force to be working with. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, your Gatsby picks are really special, some of my faves. Yeah, that was great. Um, I worked on that, worked on Moulin Rouge. I mean, you know, it's like any photograph, isn't it? You give it 10 years, even the shit picture becomes quite good. <laughs> you know, because things change, don't they? You know, fashion changes, people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, he's given me a lot of opportunities, Baz, and, you know, I'm very, very grateful to them because, you know, ultimately they're just they're loyal people and that counts for a lot. Yeah, it does. I noticed your daughter is a talented director, actor. I checked out her short film. Oh, Lily. Yeah, yeah. No, Lily's great. Yeah. Lily, um, Lily went to uh, WAPA for three years in Perth and did an acting course which was quite an achievement itself just to get in. I don't know how many people audition. Yeah, and so she's making films and acting. I think she's away, well, she's not away now, but she just got a, quite a good job, actually. Like these kids, like all these young people, they're like, they make films, they write them, they, they play music, they do everything. I mean, it's great. I love it. Yeah, it's cool. The short, my brother just got home from jail or something. Is that what, what it was called? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that was, yeah, she just, <laughs> oh, she made that now, garage. But she's done other stuff. Yeah, they're just constantly doing things. That is cool. Hey, did you do a shoot with Kate and David Bromley for something? I Yeah, vague... no, I met, you know what, I've shot Kate years ago. I was thinking about this. I shot her for L magazine or something. I've come across her a few times. Right. And then, yes, on that shoot, I met David, who I really adore. I really like David. Yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, I did a shoot with Kate and David down in Melbourne. Actually, it was funny because David's got that amazing place on Chapel Street. Yeah. And um, I didn't know it existed. And I was in Melbourne on a job once and I went down with 
with Emma and Emma was just wandering around Chapel Street one day. We came home that night and she said, oh, I met this great guy today just in the street and he took me upstairs to this place and she said, I've never seen anything like it. It was extraordinary. Yeah. And she was describing David's place and then, um, I don't know, only a few weeks after that, I was curious but I didn't know how I was going to get in there. We went down and did that shoot with David and Kate and it is. It's, yeah, he's got this whole world, hasn't it, yeah, David? Yeah. That he's sort of at the centre of it. Yeah, it's magic. Yeah, it is magic. And I think he deserves a lot more credit quite often from the art world than perhaps he gets. But Yeah, I, I yeah. agree. He, he's, no, he's a force. He's a, he's a bloody good guy. Yeah. Well, he and I are about the same age. And I think we're, you know, not dissimilar yeah. in many ways. And so we got on quite well. Okay. Just one of those people that occasionally meet people that you think, oh, yeah. You feel like you've known them a lot longer than you have. Yeah, kindred spirit. Yeah. When I thought of doing the podcast, he was literally the first person I thought of. I was like, he is, for me, you know, he's the, the ultimate artist, creative force of nature kind of dude. And he was like, yeah, sure. He lives, that they live a triple here in you, so they live a totally artistic life. They you do. Know, and I think that, to their credit, I just think that's great. Yep, yep. Totally agree. Another interesting project I discovered yesterday was the Maverick Soul book you did with Miv Watts. Oh, yeah, that was funny. Um, you know, like back in the 80s, I guess, in Sydney, I met, I met Miv. I was doing stills on an Ice House video and the stylist on the shoot was Miv and she had her son, Ben, there who was supposed to be helping her and he wasn't. You know, he was... He actually ended up just hanging out with me, grilling me about photography. <laughs> and then Ben and I sort of became friends and through that met Naomi. And then, you know, we'd all been friends and for a long time. But, like, Naomi and Ben are sort of 10 years younger than me and Miv was 10 years older. So I was kind of in the middle. So I became friends with both of them. We became quite good friends with their mum, with Miv, you know, who I also really adore. And then... We moved back to London at some point and Miv was living there and so I saw an awful lot of her. And um, she's another true sort of bohemian. And um, a few years ago, she came up with this idea to, to do this book and it seemed like just a completely fanciful idea that we would just go around the world and photograph crazy bohemian people. <laughs> and um, I said, look, Miv, I'm up for it, but... You know, I, I can't just go off and do it on, on, on a whim, you know, or, you know. So I said, you get a publisher, I'll do it. Anyway, to her credit, she went out and got a publisher, so we ended up having to do it. And it was a bit like pulling teeth, and we were pretty... It, it was torturous to do, and there were times when I remember standing on a train platform in the south of France somewhere just screaming at each other. Like, she does bring out the worst in me at times. <laughs> um, but we are good friends. Anyway, we pulled it off and we did this book, and it's actually a pretty good book. And it, I think it sold, like, 30,000 copies, which for a coffee table book isn't bad. Every now and again I get a royalty check, which... That's good going, no, mate. Didn't expect it. That's, no. that's a trip. <laughs> I, uh, Naomi used to live with me in Bondi back in the 80s and we had a short fling there. I used to go over to Miv's house and all yeah. of that. So it was just kind of, oh, my God. I, I checked out some of the photos of the book and it's just all these memories flooding back. Totally surreal. 
Well, yeah, they were all people that Nev had kind of connected with at some point in her life. And she's actually a very good writer, Nev. So what made it more interesting than it just being a coffee table book of photographs is that she's written quite personally about all these people. But, yeah, I said to someone the other day, it's, I think it's the only, only kind of lifestyle homewares book that's got a guy in it smoking heroin. I won't say who it is, but... She's got some pretty, yeah, she's got some great old friends. Oh, man, that was a trip. Um, Griffin Dunn, what was it like meeting him? I remember he made oh, one of yeah. my favourite films from back in the 80s, After Hours. Did you ever see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, he's a good guy. God, where was he? He was up, I was in New York. I, so what would happen is I was travelling a lot more in those days and so I would sort of hook shoots on the back of it. So I was in New York shooting for someone and... Um, Mev was there, I think, staying with Naomi. So she, had, Naomi, I guess, is friends with Griffin. So we went up to his place for a day, which was up. We went up, I think that day we went and shot someone up in Hudson and then we went up there and photographed him. Yeah, he's a good guy, lives on a farm, you know. He was talking about making the documentary that he made recently on his aunt, whose name just escapes me, famous female writer. He just made this great documentary on her. God, it's gone out of my head, sorry. That's what I love about this whole thing. You go off and you get in the car and you go off and you meet somebody and you spend a day with them and you photograph them and then you quite often never see them again, but somewhere locked away in the bank of it all, you know. No, it's a, no, it's a big adventure. Mate, tell me about the gallery. I'm hoping you didn't open the gallery, you know, two weeks before COVID hit or something. Well, I was just looking for something to do with Emma, really, with my wife. And we, um, I love the idea of just having a little portrait studio where I can photograph people all the time. And that, that whole idea of the high street portrait studio seems to have gone. But there was a time when most photographers had a studio. Quite often they were in a shop and I wanted to do it. And the space came up and it was amazing. It was a great space. It had space for us to have the gallery and for me to have a little studio and also I've got my office in there. We signed the lease when I was away on Baz's film. So for the first three or four months, we were paying the rent, but we just had brown paper over the windows. And then um, I came back and we got opened and then the whole COVID thing. But it's fine. I sell prints online. I've got my FaceTime studio set up in there. Yeah, it's great. That's working. Yeah, it seems so far. Yes. Good. Um, I mean, aided and abetted by kind of funny, simple... The other day I... Um, you know, occasionally I'll sell prints of my Leonardo pictures from Romeo and Juliet, and I had been coerced by Celeste Barber into giving her one, which I gave to her quite willingly. Um, and then about two weeks ago, well, just around the time that we had to shut the shop because of COVID, she posted one on her Instagram, one herself standing in front of this Leonardo picture, and immediately... You know, I was inundated. My Instagram followers went up from like 7,000 to 10,000 overnight and I sold a bunch of prints. So we seem to be struggling. You know, once again, things just seem to be working out. <laughs> Have you embraced or not embraced social media? Yeah, I like it. I like Instagram. I like it because when you look back over it, it's like keeping a diary. And, you know, which I always fantasised about but never did. <laughs> or I would buy a new one every year and then by about March I'd lost it. Um, yeah, so, no, I, I, I get it. I mean, I don't, I'm not as comfortable with it as my children are. I mean, they don't even use Instagram. They're all about TikTok and stuff now. 
But um, yeah, ultimately, I think the internet's it's extraordinary what's happening in the world because we can now communicate more directly with each other. It holds people accountable. You can bypass the spin from politicians to great degrees. You know, you get access to opinions that you wouldn't normally get. I mean, it's extraordinary. I, I think it's great. Yeah. If you were starting out now as a photographer, well, which route would you embrace? Look, I don't know if I'd tell anybody to start now as a photographer. And in the last few years, I've been directing um, a lot more or equal amount uh, as I do photography. I don't know how to answer that question. I, look, I don't think it was easy starting out when I did, and I don't think it's any easier starting out now. Yeah. I think you just, you know, the same very tiny number of people get successful. It still comes down to having a good idea. Yeah. On your photo shoots these days, are they more often than not asking you to shoot video content as well? Um, yeah, there's all, you know, BTS stuff. There's always people filming on shoots now because it's all about amassing content, isn't it? But also I've been directing stuff myself, which I quite enjoy. Just finished something for the Heart Foundation last week. Before that, two weeks before that, I did something for Acon. Yeah, look, it's just another, just another way of moving forward, really. Yeah, I really like those Glenn Fittich spots you yeah, did. Yeah, the, they uh, were nice. They were beautiful. Yeah, yeah I, I, look, I've been on so many film sets that I understand that world quite well. I mean, just commercially, when I pitch on a job that I can direct the content piece and do the photography as well, it quite often gets me jobs. Yeah, um, yeah. You yeah. know, I've, I've often done stills on TV commercials and, yeah. and the stills, you know, gets relegated to lunchtime or, and then by then they've turned all the lights off, you know, and the gaffers are doing their utmost not to give you any opportunities. But when you're running the show, you know, you can, you can call the shots and it works out quite well it has worked out quite well for me it also means that i can quite often combine the two budgets and create a bit of a ponzi scheme so that i i um yeah well yeah it, it does i think you know the client gets better value and then the other thing is that the stills campaign correlates much better with the motion part of it yeah, yeah. and this thirst for content now is so great you're right it's happening you, yeah. a lot more how, yeah. how are you with the treatment side of things that, uh, that you have to do in the, the, oh, the commercial world? I'm used to doing all that. I yeah. like writing. I'm like, okay, as a writer, I, I quite like explaining myself. I can sit down at night and write a treatment and then I have somebody that, you know, people that help me put it together and everything. Yeah, I mean, you do, you do a load of treatments and half the time, you know, you do a great treatment and you think, yeah, for sure, I've got this job and then you don't. And then you do another treatment that takes you 10 minutes because you're so busy and you get the job. So, <laughs> I'm still figuring it all out, though. Oh, mate, no, you're doing a good job in your in your mellow, um, <laughs> under the radar way, under the radar, but not. Yeah, I don't know. I just do what I think. I, you know, I enjoy it. I don't have any great delusions of grandeur. I'm very happy just to go and rock up quite often on my own with my camera in a little bag and take a photograph of somebody. You know, and equally, I quite like being in charge of 40 people telling them what to do. I just don't want to do it all the time. Sounds good. Mate, about to wrap up, a couple of uh, people I'd like to ask you about, Johnny Cash and Michael Caine, a couple of heroes. How was it shooting them? Oh, wow. 
Johnny Cash, I shot, he came out to Australia and he was doing this tour. It was when he was really big on religion. Must have been in the early 90s. And I used to work a lot for Australian Style magazine. And I guess they must have organised it. But anyway, we managed to get sort of 10 minutes with him um, in a hotel room in the city somewhere. And, um, I mean, he was a bit of a hero of mine. And um, I, I tell you, he came into the room. He's a big guy. And he walked in. We rented a hotel room somewhere in the same hotel that he was in, set it all up in there, and he comes, knocks on the door, and he comes and he goes, hello, my name's Johnny Cash. <laughs> and we, um, yeah, he was, he was, you know, I can't, he was, I don't know, we had an hour or something with him. Wow. Took photographs, um, got the exposure slightly wrong. I remember the necks are a bit thin. So um, the fact that they've now been digitised and I've been able to rectify that's been quite good. And then, yeah, Michael Caine the same, you know. I love Michael Caine and I... How many times have I photographed him? So I got this... Oh, that's right. I know how that came about. I was living in New York and I was working a lot for Condé Nast Traveller and they used to do a little uh, section of the magazine was a sort of on-set thing where they would send a photographer to a set and you would photograph on the set. So Philip Noyce was making The Quiet American in Vietnam. So we flew out to Vietnam and um, spent about, I don't know, five days or something on the set there, photographed them, took hundreds of rolls of film. Chris Doyle was the cinematographer. So it was all, it was pretty interesting to be around. Then I guess I got on well with somebody because then they asked me to do the poster for the movie because they moved from Vietnam and then they came and they were working at Fox Studios for all the interiors. So Actually, there's a good Michael Caine story on that. We were in this bicycle factory in Hanoi and it was wet and there was like water all over the floor and it was dark. And I was in there. And you know who Chris Doyle is? Yeah, yeah, he's a legendary you know, character. Well. Yes, shot in the mood for love. Anyway, we were in there and I thought they had it lit. And then when Chris started shooting, Chris, Chris is quite short, right? Well, compared to Michael Caine, he's quite tall. So he'd had these, like, Spice Girls shoes built. Like, he had these Converse shoes and they had these big wedges on them so he could be up because he's hand-holding most of the time. I thought it was all lit, but when they came to shoot, they turned all the lights off and Chris just had a piece of bamboo stuck to the camera, you know, with a light bulb hanging off the end of it that was just sort of swinging around and he was shooting this thing. Anyway, it was quite a long shot and they walked through and in the middle of it, this massive water rat like ran out and like sat on Michael Caine's foot and then kept going and Michael Caine never missed a beat right he just kept going and um at the end of it they called cut and someone said Michael did you see that rat and he goes yeah I saw it by a dialogue (laughs) it's so professional you know just anyway then they um yeah I shot the poster for it did it out and um you know at Fox and we came out and there was a whole big Palava, you know, where you set up a studio and you shoot all these ingredients, which they end up, you know, by then you're working with an ad agency and they they basically comp the whole poster together and you've got to shoot all these things. Well, mate, fantastic to have a chat. Thanks for sharing your Sunday Arvo with me. Yeah, finally, I was telling Emma I was doing it, and she was going, I was in Lee's film. Oh, yeah, Emma. I know. So funnily enough, she had a little ah. part, remember, in your Dust Off oh, the Wings, at, right? At Ravisi's. Yeah, somebody had sent her. She had a picture from it. I sent it to you. Funny. What, what a classic. What yeah. a small world. Worlds collide. Amazing.
That was a pretty funny scene, that one, that the hen's night on the balcony at Ravisi's. I'll tell you a funny story to wrap up on that. So we've got, you know, about 12 girls, it's the hen's night, they're sitting around the table of the veranda of Ravisi's. So I'm like, okay, let's get the champagne out. I want this shot. It was handheld on a little dolly. And I want to go from one end of the table, 12 women at a bucks night, and I want to track down to the other end with them doing their hen's night banter. So we tracked down 12 girls, champagne, hen's night. Every single girl was talking at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) No, no one was listening. It was just 12 voices. Classic realistic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's one of my favorite shots. Remind them it wasn't a documentary. (laughs) There you go. Well, say good day for me, mate. Thank you. Talk soon. All the best. That's it for my chat with Hugh. Such a small world, isn't it? I wasn't aware that Hugh's wife, Emma, was an actress in a movie I made in the 90s, Dust Off the Wings, until just that moment. Totally trippy. Hugh certainly has followed his passion, hasn't he, and carved out an interesting and creative life. Very inspiring, and it's such an incredible body of work. Head to hughstewart.com to see his work and buy prints of some of his work. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you know the drill, share the blank canvas with a friend. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production. <laughs>